So welcome everyone to the CSF author interview. We're very, my name is Professor Peter Nash from Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Claudia Salinas, who is the Director of Pharmacoepidemiology at Eli Lilly and Company in Indianapolis in the USA. Welcome, Claudia. We thank, thank you. you very much for joining us today and for giving up your time to discuss really a very important paper recently published in Rheumatology Therapy. And you can find uh, the publication slides and all information on the CSF website, which you'll find very helpful. This paper evaluates the risk or the incidence really of venous thromboembolism, MACE and serious infection in RA patients treated with baricitinib compared to TNF inhibitors. And they used multi-database patients from disease registries and claim databases. And I can't think of anything more important <laughs> after the uh, oral surveillance paper to look at another Jack and to ask similar questions, even though it's not a head-to-head. -head. So welcome, Claudia. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your, the work that you are doing? And then we'll come to the paper. Sure. Thank you very much for inviting me today. So um, as you mentioned, I am an epidemiologist at Eli Lilly. I sit within the Global Patient Safety Organization at Lilly, and I design studies to evaluate the safety of um, our medications and to support um, the development of information to help uh, determine the benefit risk of our compounds. So the work that I did here was uh, part of a study originally designed to expand the US label of baricitinib to the um, methotrexate inadequate responder population. As we all know, from the time that we started this work uh, several years ago, the external landscape changed substantially and Nonetheless, it is still a safety study and we bring some um, new data to the table. I will say the study is not definitive, but I think it adds to the evidence that we have. Certainly does. So thank you very much. Can you give us, do you have happen to know the kind of impact, at least in the US, of the whole oral surveillance paper and the FDA black box have you seen dramatic changes in prescribing? Uh, are you aware of what's going on in Europe as well? Any, any thoughts on that? So I'm afraid I don't really sit in a place where I have access to that data. Obviously, all of the activity from the regulators in the US FDA and EMA has impacted the uh, rheumatology and dermatology, et cetera, communities. But I can't speak to any changes in numbers that would be outside of, of my expertise and access. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about this paper then. Um, can you tell us how you went about doing it, explaining the registries you've chosen, the databases? Many of the audience will not be familiar with some of those registries and databases. Sure. And I'm just flipping on my end to my list because there are very many. There were 16 in total that we evaluated. And I will be quite frank. Um, we looked to find 
any large data sources with um, many patients with RA. This study is restricted to patients with rheumatoid arthritis only. I realize that there are several other populations who, of patients who take um, JAK inhibitors and baricitinib specifically, but we look specifically within RA um, because of the original intent of the study to expand the label in the RA population. Um, also, it makes most sense to look by indication. So although we looked at 16 data sources, we actually only included 14 of the data in the analysis. Two that we did not include in the results for, that are presented in the paper were, um, one was very small, had very limited information, and we decided not to proceed with analysis, although we reported confidence intervals for the incidence rates for VTE and MACE, and there were no events actually. And in the other one, and that was the CPRD or the Clinical Practice Research Database, which has electronic medical records from the UK. So that was not included. And the other one was a um, French database. And we had been uh, attempting to get the overall French uh, claims data, which is billing information from the national healthcare system in France. We were successful in obtaining that to include in the analysis. And because the other data source was a subset of the population, not the same data, but a subset of the population, it was entirely contained within the larger data source. And so we didn't look at that. So those are the two that we didn't look at. The other 14, as I mentioned, were based on trying to identify sources of data that would have the largest numbers of patients treated with baricitinib. But the study matched patients one-to-one, -one, and I can talk more about that later, about how the propensities yeah, for matching works. Go yeah. into that in a minute. Um, we used data sources in the U.S., in Europe, and in Japan. The majority of the data was um, insurance claims data. So for those who aren't familiar, this is data that is generated in the course of billing for um, healthcare interactions. So even in places where there is national healthcare, there's always a billing record generated. This data is obviously not generated for the purposes of research. So there are some important limitations of the data, but one very good property of it is that it is easy in this type of data to get large numbers of patients. For example, the French data that we used includes the entire national population of France. And this is really important for a couple of reasons. RA patients are not a very large proportion of the total population, right, about 1%. Then we're further restricting it to patients treated with advanced therapies. Um, either baricitinib or, in the case of this study, um, specific TNF inhibitors. And then on top of that, we needed to look at events that are not really that common. And VTE was our primary outcome, and that's not really very frequent. So studying it is difficult, and you want to look for large data sources. And very quickly, as uh, you can see, when you look at the numbers in the paper, you whittle down the numbers of people that you have to actually analyze. So, so that, that raises two points, really. How confident yes. are you with the RA diagnosis, given that uh, RA is a higher risk than general population, than OA, PSA, whatever? So how and some of these databases seem to swamp the others. As you say, the French was 3,200, the Swedish was Sweden, sorry, 
was 1,700, the Germans 850. Is it possible that they overwhelmed the total data? Oh, absolutely. So let me answer your first question. So the our confidence in the um, RA diagnosis. So there were a few of the data that were actually from registries, the Cora Evitas registry, and Artis uses data from the um, Swedish registry and links it to other national data sources. So those are um, diagnoses given by physicians, the rheumatologist in particular. Um, the claims data, the, the way that we evaluate how good uh, definition is in claims data is using positive predictive value. There are other measures of performance, but that's probably the most relevant for assessing the, the confidence in a definition. And that just says, if I identify a patient as having a particular condition, RA in this case, how often would that patient truly have um, that condition if I went and looked at the gold standard is medical records? For RA, we used a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, meaning in an ICD-10 code in US data and in really the majority of the other claims data in Europe. But patients also have to have had to be treated with uh, an advanced therapy used to treat a DMARD, in, in other words. And that combination has really good positive predictive value that's been validated in previous studies, independent studies, so not in our same data. Um, and I can also add that we restricted that definition had to come from an encounter with a physician. So it couldn't be because the patient was being sent for a lab test and there was a diagnosis code entered. It had to come from an um, encounter with a physician. So we have good confidence that the patients really do have rheumatoid arthritis. And the, and the swamping of the numbers by the biggest ah, yes. No, absolutely. You are quite right. So while we originally intended this study to be um, at least half, we thought, U.S. data and then non-U.S. data, in truth, the change in the external landscape means that the U.S. data contributed a, only a small fraction of the total um, exposure or inpatient years and events, and it's really about 14%. So in fact, the artist data from Sweden, which is the register data plus the other national data, um, and the French data comprise almost two thirds of all of the exposures. And I think it's about the same, maybe a little bit more of the outcomes. So this is really a European study, and it is largely a French and Swedish study with a little bit of contribution from Germany. In truth, okay. yes, and that's this is one of the hazards of doing epidemiological studies while the ground Fair is enough. shifting beneath your feet. Fair enough, and I noticed that nine thousand odd were sort of eligible, and you matched seventy six hundred with the TNF inhibitor. Yes. What happened to the other fourteen hundred? Right, that's an excellent question, and um, I will try not to get too technical. So. We this is observational data, and we know that there are many different reasons why physicians and patients, uh, why patients end up receiving treatment with a particular medication versus another. Some of the reasons why patients are assigned or prescribed a drug may be related to risk factors that actually influence the outcome you're trying to study, right? So in clinical trials, we deal with that with randomization. 
and you start off with patients who at baseline have the same risk or probability of experiencing the endpoint of interest as the patients in the other group or arm. In observational studies, the gold standard for establishing equipoise or equal risk at baseline is using propensity score matching and an active comparator new user design. So let me go through those briefly in order. So the active comparator new user design says that you include patients from the time they first start using a medication. This means that you're not going to miss things that can happen as soon as a patient begins taking a medication that might lead to the patient discontinuing, right? Hypothetically, if a medication causes an adverse event and many people discontinue, if you don't include users right when they start, you might miss those events. So the other piece of the study design is the active comparator. We know from a lot of previous history and epidemiology that when you compare patients treated with medications to patients who are not being treated, there are substantial differences between those groups, right? In the US, it could be that they have no insurance. In other countries, it could be that um, those patients simply don't have the same disease activity or severity of disease. Um, and so there are such big differences between those two groups that you may not ever be able to make them similar in terms of risk of an outcome. So that's the first piece that helps us make the two groups comparable. The other piece is propensity scores. And this in a roundabout way is why we go from about 9,000 to about 76,000 patients, 70, sorry, <laughs> to 7,600 wishful thinking. Um, so what propensity scores do essentially is they seek to make patients the same, the patients in the paracitinib and the TNF inhibitor group, similar with regards to the distribution of risk factors. And we do that by giving patients a propensity score. And there's a, oh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but there's a very good paper on propensity scores for a lay audience. If you're interested, I can forward that afterwards. But essentially what we do is we generate propensity scores for patients in the baricitinib arm, all the eligible patients, and the same for the patients in the TNF inhibitor group. And then we match propensity scores. So what we're trying to do is make the distribution the same. And this propensity score is essentially ends up being a, a measure of the risk of the outcome based upon uh, risk factors. And those risk factors are listed in the paper, the ones that we looked at. There's a caveat I'll come back to. So anyone who has, let's say, a very low propensity score, meaning that they are unlikely to receive the medication that they're being treated, may not end up with a match in the other group. Similarly, people with a very high propensity score may not end up matching. And we match baricitinib patients. So we maximize the number of baricitinib treated patients because that's the exposure of interest. People who don't match are excluded. So we that's how we whittle down. And the group that we end up with in the analysis is patients who actually look like each other in terms of the risk factors that we evaluated. What this means when you're looking at it, the smaller the proportion you actually keep in the analysis, 
the more you should ask, well, who's excluded, right? It affects the generalizability of the results. At the, but what it does do is it increases the comparability of the group. And so what we call the internal validity, the results are valid in terms of comparisons, but may not generalize. And I will say that for the large data sources that we looked at, the proportion that we retain is very high. So in general, the results we have from the, each of the largest data sources, I would say is generalizable to those populations. I think the US is the place where we have the greatest attrition, but that's only a small and proportion of the total. And there's some caveats because in the US it would be two milligrams, not four milligrams. In Europe, it would be maybe four. And then in the yes. US, there were TNFIR patients whereas in Europe, they may well be MTXIR patients. So it does get pretty tricky. So your primary was VTE and your secondaries were MACE and serious infection. You followed them for nine to 10 months. Is that long enough, do you think? Well, actually we followed them as long as we could. So this study was designed to look at a brief period of time which is also why we didn't look at malignancy because that requires a longer etiological window. And we took all the data that we could. There's different amounts of follow-up in each of the data sources, but you're right, on average, it was about nine months. So this is definitely not long enough to evaluate long-term safety. Um, there are also some caveats because we started that, in other words, we included patients who were taking baricitinib as soon as baricitinib was available on the market. So as soon it was, as it was approved and launched. And we all know that patients who begin taking a medication as soon as it's available on the market may differ in some important ways, particularly related to these, um, their risk factor profiles from patients who take a medication once it's been out on the market a little bit longer. Right. In particular, they may be patients who are more refractory, um, might be a bit older. They've been through more medications potentially. Um, so, no, if I could, I would look at a much longer time period, but we wanted to get information as rapidly as we could. There are several other studies, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, that are also evaluating the safety of baricitinib. And this was just one of the efforts that we were making to describe the safety profile with regards to these. Yeah, and we congratulate you on your efforts. It's a huge effort. <laughs> um, baseline, they had very high disease activity. Very few people were in low disease activity or uh, even, um, even fewer were in, in remission. Um, affect all those outcomes, particularly VTE and MACE, um, equivalent across the two comparable groups? Well, so this, back to my comments about the limitations of claims data, um, and actually even registries. So let me talk about the claims data first. Claims data is wonderful in that it lets us epidemiologists start with large number of uh, numbers of patients, which very few things make epidemiologists happy, happier than having mm -hmm. a very large starting population. The challenges though, are that um, this data does not include information about many lifestyle factors like smoking, BMI, 
or measures of disease activity. So we did not have any conventional measures of disease activity, CDI, SDI, HAC, any of that. Um, we did a little experiment in the artist data, but I'll come back to that in a moment. So we did attempt to use a proxy for disease activity, uh, the Cirrus index. I'll be totally transparent and tell you that it is a very poor proxy. Um, that was a separate, it was generated separately. There's a, another publication that describes it in detail, but it's essentially a score or a measure for healthcare resource utilization based upon severity of disease, right? Thinking that patients who have more severe disease may have more testing, may see their rheumatologist more often. As you can imagine, that's really not perfect. So this is one of the limitations of the study. If there are differences between the baricitinib and the TNF inhibitor treated group with regards to disease severity, whichever scale you feel is most important, we would not have been able to account for that. We did do what I will describe as kind of a thought experiment. Um, it's a bias analysis so that we looked at what would be the impact of not being able to equilibrate the disease activity between the two groups. What's the worst case scenario for the bias that we could have included in the results? And this was a simple-minded analysis. It's described in the paper. I won't go into it unless you specifically want to know, but it's probably the most simple way that you can analyze this. And a more complex analysis could have yielded different results, but that suggests that there wasn't a big impact to the results. In other words, the bias that could exist in the results doesn't appear to be bigger than the uncertainty we have anyway because of the, the width of the 95% confidence intervals in the relative measures comparing risk. Um, I will also add that um, Dr. Solomon looked previously in, an, in a separate paper, he evaluated the impact of including measures, conventional measures of disease activity for rheumatoid arthritis after having risk factors, conventional risk factors, so um, comorbid conditions, age, et cetera, for MACE, and found that once you include those traditional risk factors, including or adding disease severity, didn't really make a huge difference. So in other words, you already accounted for most of the effects of disease severity with the traditional risk factors. But this, again, was a separate study so there is, it's possible that the results do have bias due to not incorporating that information. And as I mentioned, sure. we also did not have information on BMI or smoking, which are also associated so that with several been, of those outcomes. As you say, it'd be nice to know background corticosteroid rates, background methotrexate rates, background so we did have steroid. H2 inhibitors. We did have information on steroid use. And we did include that in the analyses. We also did a sensitivity analysis where we looked at um, steroids as a time-dependent variable. So if patients went on or off steroids or over the course of the follow-up, we took that into account. And the results didn't differ appreciably. Um, in the Swedish data, we were also able to actually include an analysis, a sensitivity analysis, where we included um, disease activity. And that also didn't have a huge effect on the, on the result. So we okay, were only able to look at that for serious infection, though. 
Excellent. So I wonder if you'd explain to the audience what the difference between an IRR and an IRD. Absolutely. So I know that um, there was a great deal of conversation about this within my colleagues at Lilly, so I can <laughs> imagine. So typically, um, we use a relative risk, right? And that's also epidemiology jargon for uh, an incidence rate ratio would be like a, a relative risk. Essentially, we're always talking about incidence rates, right? Which is a measure of the frequency of an outcome. And, and let's talk about VTE in this case, so we can anchor on something. Um, both of those measures, the IRR and the IRD, evaluate or compare incidence rates. In the case of the IRR, you divide the incidence rate in baricitinib by the incidence rate of VTE in the TNF inhibitor treated group. The IRD or the incidence rate difference is simply the mathematical difference. So literally we subtract the incidence rate in the TNFI treated group from the baricitinib treated group and we get a difference. So why would you do this? <laughs> You'd want to know. So generally there's more than one way to look at things, right? You can have a relative risk, which may tell you how much worse is it. And all of these things, by the way, apply to populations, right? They're groups. And this is not, doesn't give you information about the risk that individual patients have. It's in a population and in the data source that we looked at. So if something has, we had a, a risk of about 1.5 fold greater for baricitinib treated patients than TNFI treated patients with respect to VTE. And that was statistically significant. So, but that 1.5 fold needs to anchor on something to really understand, right? Sure, it's 50% more events in the Berry group, but you get an understanding of the perhaps the public health impact, when you look at what exactly does that translate into in terms of absolute differences, and that's what the incidence rate difference tells you. I think rounded, it's about 0.3 per 100 patient years. Um, so that's three extra per thousand treated for yes. a year. That's okay. right, with baricitinib so instead of TNF inhibitor treated. So let's let's go through that because I thought there was numeric differences that didn't reach statistical significance. So I was going to ask you, we I agree entirely. Relative risk is is uh, a little bit deceptive. IRD we can anchor in the number of patients we treat for a year and how the difference between the two groups. So can you tell us a little bit about the results, the primary outcome, and then the secondary outcomes? Sure. So. For VTE, as I mentioned, um, the incidence rate ratio was 1.51. The confidence intervals ranged from 1.1 to 2.08. Because that confidence interval doesn't include one, meaning that when you divide one by the other, there's no difference, it's statistically significant. Um, okay. the, and the incidence rate difference is 0 0.26 per 100 patient years. As we said, three additional events observed over a year if you were to observe 100 patients. And that confidence interval ranges from sorry, negative- Sorry, 1,000 patients. I'm sorry, a yes, thousand. per 1,000 patients. Thank you, that's a very important distinction. <laughs> um, 
And that confidence interval ranges from negative 0.04 to 0.57. Because that confidence interval includes zero, that's not statistically significant. So that is VTE. So for um, MACE, and by the way, our definition of MACE is also independently validated in other studies, not in the data sources that we looked at, which could definitely influence the positive predictive value. The PPV is not really a transportable measure of performance, but pretty much all the time that you look at definitions of, of MACE, the positive predictive value is in the 90th percentiles and typically around 95% or higher, meaning if you see it in the claims data, you have very good confidence that the patient actually experienced that outcome. So the incidence rate ratio for MACE was 1.54. Confidence intervals range from 0.93 to 2.54. Since it includes one in the confidence interval, it's not statistically significant. The difference was 0.22 from negative 0.07 to 0.52. Again, that includes zero in this case. So it's also not statistically significant. And I can say that, so statistical significance, I guess among statisticians, it is quite controversial. I would consider it to be part of the evidence that you weigh when you're deciding the, the confidence you have in the findings, right? It's just one element. The magnitude of the relative risks or IRRs that we see here are similar between MACE and VTE, but because the VTE is significant, and I will say this was largely driven by the direction or the point estimate for the French and Swedish data, because that was statistically significant, the weight of evidence for the VTE result is higher than the weight of evidence for the result in MACE. And you can also look at the results by data source. And in particular, I'll direct your attention to those two largest data sources. You can include Germany if you like, but that was, as I said, the two largest provide 67% approximately. It varies by outcome mm -hmm. um, of the data that we looked at. So when the two agree, it's going to drive statistical significance, meaning they're on the same side of the null, meaning increased risk or decreased risk. Anytime that they disagree, you won't have statistical significance. And indeed, for the MACE analyses, the results in the French data and the Swedish data did not agree. So that, again, is part of the evidence that you should weigh. And that means we have a little bit less confidence. And it could be that there is confounding. As I mentioned, there are some things that we didn't look at. Um, the bias analyses we did suggest that there isn't a huge impact of not having included those things. Um, we also had some additional sensitivity analyses, but really it's also possible that there is heterogeneity. In other words, that there truly are differences in the Swedish patients and in the uh, French patients. It could be that there it's are differences. It's so important to have, yeah, so yes. important to have baseline data, you know, who's on Kanak aspirin, who's not, who's on a COX-2, uh, driven by so many other things. Tell us about the um, serious infection. Sure. And so in the last one, 
again, these results were not statistically significant for serious infection. What we have for the incidence rate ratio, that was 1.36, so 36% greater risk of serious infection in the baricitinib treated compared to TNFI treated confidence intervals from 0.86 to 2.13, includes one, not STAT-SIG. The difference was 0.57, so a little per 100 patient years, a little larger than we've seen for the others. But this ranged from the uh, point, negative 0. Sorry, negative 0 0.07 to 1.21 for the confidence interval bounds. And because it includes zero, it's not statistically significant. Uh, an epidemiologist, frankly, looking at this relative risk would say that this is a modest increase in risk, but because it's not statistically significant and you look at those two largest data sources again, and they are not in agreement, and in a different way than for the MACE result, disturbingly, and it means that the weight of evidence for this result is also less than the weight of evidence for the VTE result. Yeah, and I should highlight the VTE result. You excluded people with a past history of VTE. Yes. You excluded people on anticoagulants. Okay, so they're, right. they're the major. They're the major results. Was and and there's a lot of information we'd love to find out to explain some of those results. Um, Absolutely. Is there a time course? Did they? Did these events happen early? Distribute evenly throughout? Accumulate at an increasing rate over time? Or were the numbers too small to actually know that? The latter is the truth. So we looked the the time over which we looked, as we mentioned earlier, is not really long. And while for VTE, it's not clear that there is an effect of, um, of time or on medication on the incidence rate of VTE, and th that information is from our clinical trials and particularly the long-term extension study where we saw uh, consistent incidence rates over six-month periods of time. Um, for MACE and um, yeah, for, neither for MACE, we probably don't have enough time to be able to evaluate that. And the number of events is really too limited. If we started breaking it up into periods of time, six months, a year even, we would run out of periods very quickly and the confidence intervals would be entirely overlapping. So we wouldn't be able to distinguish them. Yeah, so unfortunately. What did, so thank you very much for that. So in, in summary, three per thousand increase uh, every thousand patients you treat for a year, you get three more VTEs, possibly two more MACE, possibly six more serious infections. Um, but the latter two weren't statistically significant, so it may be a quirk of the, of the registries. Um, and what would you say is your take-home message to the practicing clinician from all this massive amount of work that you've done? Yes. So I will just provide the caveat that I am not a clinician. So this is definitely more of an epidemiological and perspective on the data. Um, my take home is that the weight, this study increases the weight of evidence for risk of VTE associated with baricitinib and potentially JAKS, given the other findings in oral surveillance. For MACE and serious infection, I think while this adds to the evidence, it's not clear. Um, we have the overall estimates from the study, 
but really we need to consider these in light of the potential limitations of the study and the, all of the other evidence that exists from baricitinib from other studies. There, I alluded previously to other ongoing studies. Some of these are uh, observational studies or post-authorization safety studies that we've committed to, to our regulators. And one of those is um, randomized clinical trial. It's actually the RA branch and RA bridge study. When that reads out, I think we will have much clearer information on risk of MACE in particular. And that also includes uh, serious infections as an outcome, malignancy, and VTE. And VTE is the primary endpoint for that study. So unfortunately, um, we'll need more data to really have conclusive information about all of these risks. So we thank you very much. For, they are difficult to study. There's lots of caveats. So we thank you very much for your time. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available. You can get the full publication, the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the other podcast media. Give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. We greatly appreciate your time and your efforts with this study. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank <laughs> you.